And now, on today's program... Let's see where it takes us today. Roger that. And welcome aboard. Capturing this millisecond. It's a fraction of a second. It's the only thing interesting. Welcome to the Fujilove podcast. Today we are talking to an exceptionally interesting photographer. Looking at her homepage, you will find a variety of subjects. It is in fact nearly easier to talk about what she has not photographed than otherwise. But yet there is a clear line in her work. It is all based around the documentary approach and driven by social justice subjects. She's working as a professional photographer since 2008, published in many major publications and has received several awards, amongst others the Excellence in Human Rights Reporting Award from the Society of Publishers Asia. She describes herself as a street and documentary photographer. So we have a good base to talk. Welcome, Mindy Ton. Hello. Hi, Jens. Thank you for having me today. Such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Let me ask you the first question I ask everybody. Who is Mindy Ton? Ah, interesting question. Um, because I'm kind of going through a transformation right now, I think. So I'm based in Singapore and... Um, Usually I would call myself a documentary photographer, but I think what that really means is that um, I love working with people, like human subjects. So um, the things I shoot um, would include uh, editorial work, um, sometimes for newspapers and magazines, and um, also commercial projects, which would include like um, portraits or um, probably like uh, with CSR, with companies that do CSR or, you know, just like um, um, stuff going on in their offices. So I do a lot of that. Um, I think that's because um, given where Singapore is based and given that there's a lot of company headquarters here, we tend to get a lot of work like that. Um, before this, I, I used to be a wedding photographer uh, that's not something I publicize a lot, uh, but I actually have been doing weddings for the last 10 years. Um, so I think a couple of, a good couple of three, 400 weddings in my bag. So it's only um, uh, end of last year that I officially, I would say, officially stopped um, shooting weddings so that I just have more time to sort of venture into the next chapter. So I think where I am now, uh, 10 years into photography, I'm just sort of slowing down this year and um, re-evaluating uh, what I'm actually doing, So, um, which is a lot of um, personal projects. And I think I'm right now someone who hopes that I could devote more time into my personal projects. Now we're gonna we're gonna talk about your personal projects because that's something that is super interesting. Um, let's start a little bit earlier. What I wonder is that you graduated in in, in theater, sociology, and graphic design. This this sounds like the perfect setup for for a documentary photographer or for for a photographer in general. How much of those skills do you use in your photography work as you kind of progress along? I think um, a lot of it, um, I do use the sociological way of thinking a lot. Um, 
But the skills that I use today are mostly a result of um, my first four years as a newspaper reporter. So I think, you know, you say like when you when you think back, you connect the dots and then you figure out how, how all of this sort of links together. But I think when I was um, studying sociology and um, um, theater, I never... I, I never realized how this was all going to gel together. So I just did it because I thought it was fun and that it was something I was quite keen to do. And I thought like, oh, if I did theater, then I would have the most fun and the coolest friends on campus. And that's why. <laughs> so that's why, um, yeah, I thought, okay, if we're going to spend like uh, four years in university, it might as well be good. So... I, I I think that sort of exposure into the arts, that sort of thinking um, helped me today. And, you know, when I'm thinking about my personal work and where this should go, um, it also helps me understand sort of like the Asian psyche, the mentality when it comes to the arts specifically. Is there is there a huge difference in like how, how art is being perceived in Asia and, and, and compared to the rest of the world? Um, perhaps it's not so much a need or want you know um and also i think it tends to sort of have a limited audience um uh, whereas i think in 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 the west probably um arts is a bit more contemporary and um more part of an everyday life but i think in asia it is something that you deliberately pursue um and where there is art, it tends to be more traditional. So something more deeply embedded sort of a culture that goes way back. Whereas the contemporary scene is is fairly limited, I think. Interesting, because as you said, it's uh, I uh, my personal feeling is that uh, here in the middle of Europe, it's actually uh, the other way around. So, yeah, I think one of the ways to bridge that gap, at least here in Singapore and in, in my part of the world, uh, is through photography. So, I mean, it's, it's the easiest form of entry into some kind of art, so to speak. Uh, but when you go into performance art, the reach is very limited over here. Do you feel like an artist? I don't think I am an artist. Um, but I think I see myself as someone who records I mean, I I think I see my photography as having a responsibility um, for posterity's sake. So, so I'm more of a I'm more of like sort of recording the state of Asia where I live. Yeah, I don't think I'm in any way a fine art photographer. <laughs> so a lot of work that I'm doing comes out of not being able to have another choice. <laughs> so it's like, I know I'm a photographer and I know um, some things are happening before me. And so I think I use the word poster posterity. So I think for posterity's sake, I feel that I should be out there photographing certain issues or subjects that may not be the same in the future. I've, I see that in your photography and it's something that I find extremely fascinating I, I mean you can feel if a photographer feels like they have a mission 
So I feel like your mission is is human rights and injustice to to a large degree. Why are you so into those subjects? Mm, I think maybe maybe it's got to do with where I came from. Um, so my first job was a news reporter uh, in a local newspaper, like a tabloid press. So, so I wasn't in the main newspaper of Singapore. I was in sort of like the secondary sort of uh, news. So my job would be to sort of go on the ground on a daily basis um, to talk to people. And um, I was assigned, um, we, we would be assigned according to like the ministries and the government. So all the stories that I'm doing um, actually has got to do with like the Ministry of Manpower and um, community and youth issues. So I will go and talk to all these like foreign workers, um, like domestic helpers. And um, I also go talk to like troubled families um, just to look for stories. So I think um, four years of doing that sort of helped me see um, Singapore in a different light. So it's very different from the world I grew up in. And um, I personally enjoy things that has to do with nostalgia or things that maybe look back to my childhood. So I like sort of interacting with people on the ground, with, with people, you know, with real life. So I think I'm drawn to that sort of subject and that reflects inevitably in photography. What made you change from the pen to the camera? I mean, you can also, you can communicate in written word or, or by images. So you did that for like four years and then you choose to take the visual way. What made you change your tool of communication? So initially, when I first went into the newspaper, I wanted to be a photographer from the start, um, although I didn't know photography. So it was sort of like... Um, I, I just see things and I always wanted to sort of try expressing myself in a visual way. So I'm more a visual person. I mean, in school, I'm like drawing and painting and stuff like that. Um, but I think I wrote, I volunteered with my editor to write an article and he said, hey, you're better off writing. <laughs> so I stuck with that for four years until a point I said that I need to give myself a chance. I can't sit here anymore. I can't do this anymore. I need to go out and explore, you know, even even if it's not a new story. Because when you're stuck in the newsroom, you look at things from a sort of a more extreme point of view, as in something that can be published. But I was seeing things on the everyday that was really interesting. And I just felt that I needed to do something about it. So... Yeah, so I decided to leave the newspapers to be a photographer. Which then you decided to, to also concentrate on those uh, social social justice uh, subjects. That's kind of the, the line that goes through your work of the last 10 years, right? Yeah, I, I have two... I think I would split my work into two portions, actually. So one part, one part is my personal work, which I always um, find time to pursue. And the other part is bread and butter, which for a very long time, um, it has been wedding photography. Um, and for a very long time, I have tried to stop myself getting into wedding photography. Um, but it's been such a natural progression because the jobs just keep coming. 
And I, I could also see sort of how how shooting weddings actually um, helps me to hone my skills in interacting with people and being um, technically um, good with cameras to a point where it just becomes, the camera becomes a part of my body. So I no longer have to think about the camera. So I only have to think about how I should be interacting with my subjects to get the photos. So in a way, shooting weddings was training me for my personal work. That's something that I hear a lot. I mean, I, I, I hear this from people you know as well, like Damien Lovegrove or Kevin Mullins. A lot of them are very close also to, at least Kevin specifically, to, to documentary and coming from wedding. This seems to be kind of a perfect training ground to get this spontaneous uh, reaction and kind of learning to read uh, personal scenes. Mm, I think it yes and no. Um, there's also a lot of intuition you know, as in, as a photographer, you need to be fairly sensitive to people's feelings. You need to have some sort of intuition when you get into 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 things. But definitely, um, I mean, weddings being an emotional day, um, it does sort of help you predict when certain emotions are coming and how to get the best out of it. That that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you 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 are re reacting to what's happening in front of you, no matter what the subject is, but you're kind of training those muscles right yeah and i think that um because i should mostly like singaporean weddings it also helps me to understand sort of all all types of society well you know people from all walks of life so because i meet so many people so it helps me sort of get into the inner world and understand singapore a lot better and then when i do make a decision to photograph something you know something in my backyard um, I think it, it, it sort of all accumulates in terms of um, my sense of um, life experiences. So it just, it's a slow building up of knowledge. Now, when we go to, to, to more of the, the social uh, justice uh, subjects that I saw on your homepage, would you, would you say you are a brave person or are you looking for the adventure? I don't think I deliberately look for the adventure, but uh, if I know the story is there, I would, I would go and get it. So I wouldn't, um, I'm not a danger seeker, but I am, can I say thick skinned? Is that such a yeah. word? In yeah, that works. So I'm quite um, persistent and um, I have no qualms going up to a stranger <laughs> to ask for a photo or to ask if I can enter his or her home. So I have no qualms doing that. Um, and I think it's a necessary tool. As in, I don't feel easily embarrassed because I know the photo is there and I need to get it. Which I think is the way to go. Um, I, I share your feeling. I think as, as a photographer, if, if you go places where you kind of have to like get access and, and get into things, you can uh, you cannot be afraid of of just like diving in there and also exposing yourself. Yeah, um, a lot of times I I do get emotionally involved, so I think the subject can actually feel um, your intentions, whether or not you are genuine, whether or not you would you are making use of them. And uh, I think most of the time I sort of go in as a listener or a friend, um, someone on the same level. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I live through my subjects. So very often, no matter what I'm photographing, so if it's pain, I think I feel, I mean, I, I walk out of it feeling pain, you know, I'm feeling distressed. You think it's 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 a key to to good pictures that you actually kind of make that connection, so you can see things also from the perspective of your subject. I think some sort of empathy is necessary; otherwise, you will not be able to to interact with the subject on that same level. Uh, but it also can be very dangerous if you if you don't pull out of it quickly enough. You just fall into depression. If you get too involved. Have you had situations where you came back from a job and it kind of stayed with you in, in, in a, um, not in a light way for a while? I, I experienced this a lot when I was a reporter um, with the extremes, like people who got involved in uh, accidents. So I witnessed a lot of um, um, scenes that I, I, I would choose not to actually see it. Um, or dealing with emotions at a funeral, for example. And um, it does take a toll on me after a long time. And for my personal work, I think because um, it was so extreme with the newspapers and, you know, there's less depth involved in my personal work, um, I am able to sort of draw out of it more quickly. Uh, but I did a particular series so I photographed a, a community that was moving out. Um, the apartment blocks were being cleared um, so that the government could build a new expressway through that piece of land. So I, I was photographing it very intensely for a few weeks. Um, so just sort of going to people's homes, you know, photographing them, packing their things into boxes and then seeing like more and more um, apartments being emptied out, um, being locked up and like more plants dying, you know, more trash piling up from, from, you know, people's homes, people, things that people throw away. And eventually the place became, you know, silent. And, uh, now the building has been torn down. So that was particularly draining for me because, um, there were every, everyone I photographed were, when I first photographed them, they were all strangers. So it, it, it takes a lot out of you to really get to know the subject, to go in to listen and to make good pictures, and then to repeat the process again and again um, for many, many apartments in that, in that residential district. And at the end of it, I was, I think I, I, I was a bit depressed. <laughs> it took me a while to... Um, get the energy back to want to do work again, to, to do personal work again. Yeah, and, and sometimes I actually ask myself, like, why am I doing this? Um, is it important? Where are the photos going to go? Um, yeah, there's just a lot of, of questions in the aftermath. But in the present, I, I, I only know that if I don't do it, I would regret not doing it. <laughs> I think that's very that's very powerful. Um, do you do you then keep in touch with with people? Do you really become friends? How do you how do you do that practically? You live around them, close to them. Do you always come back? How do you build those relationships? In cases where I can come back, I would go back. 
Um, sometimes I would take like, for example, for this this particular story, I I have some of the addresses um, where I would go and go to their new apartments um, when they moved. So a lot of the people I befriend are actually they're quite old. Like um, I was talking to this ninety five year old man who was quite sick. So then he would tell me like, I don't know if I can make it to the new apartment. And um, so, so I'm quite wary when I say things like, I'll go visit you. <laughs> because I know that, um, practically speaking, I don't have the time to follow up with, with everyone I've interviewed, um, especially if it accumulates over the years. So once um, I finish photographing a story, when I think the story is... is is done. Um, I don't so much go back to my subjects, so I don't say things that sort of lead them on. Are you telling them that you are are you interested in their story in the moment and that you kind of want to transport that? Do you get are they becoming accomplices for for a certain period of time? I think that that would be accurate. So let's say to get a story, I would return several times to photograph them. Because maybe the first time, you know, you you don't get to see certain things or usually on the first time I don't shoot so much. Um, and then I, I would go back a few times until I, I think I think I'm somewhat there. But they would know that I'm not going to come back indefinitely and they would know that I'm not going to be a lifetime friend. I think that's a very honest approach. Um, my understanding is that in this line of work, I think honesty and also being very open about your motives is extremely important. Yeah, sometimes um, it's a bit amb ambiguous with these like personal projects because when they do ask you, uh, what is this photo for? Are you going to sell my picture? Uh, are you paying me money for this? Are you getting money out of my picture? So it, it's, it's very difficult at that point in time. Um, especially when I honestly don't know what I'm going to do with the photo. So I usually hand out my name card, which, which has everything, my number, uh, my website and stuff like that. I'll show them the work that I have done before. And I'll say, you know, it may possibly look like this. It may be published in these types of media. So usually they are, they are fairly accepting of it. And I'll, I'll always tell them that, um, I don't have concrete plans yet and I, I really don't know. And they make the decision. So the subjects, they make the decision if they, you know, if they want to be um, photographed. But I think in a lot of these cases, um, some people, they just want their voice to be heard. So my interaction with them, I think it also gives them a closure. It gives them some sort of like, statement of their existence very true you you to a degree you are you are uh, also a messenger for their causes yes whether or not whether or not it, it goes out into the world have you ever faced uh, or do you regularly face uh, just uh, the people refuse to to cooperate with you or don't understand what you what you want to achieve mm, i think you can get a good vibe from the person right from the start and uh, I never push it. So if they feel uncomfortable, I always tell them it's fine, it's okay. Because um, I think that's that's the key, the key point. If the person has doubts, um, it's also difficult for me to go ahead with the story. 
you know, because I, I also practice like a lot of self-censorship. Um, so for example, I, I did a series, it's called um, The Hour Before She Sleeps, where I photograph um, several women um, in the hour before they sleep. So sometimes my subjects would be okay um, photographing, would be okay with me photographing them in a certain way. But um, sometimes I'll ask myself, is this actually necessary? Should I, do I need this photo? So I think it's a two-way thing. Um, they let me know their limits and I practice my own responsibilities towards them. Have you ever been on the edge where you said, I'm 50% insecure if it's correct to use this image, but on the other hand, it is like essential to the story? Sometimes, yes, yes. The best thing is actually just to ask the subject whether he or she feels comfortable or not. Um, with bigger stories, I will always go back to my subjects um, because there may be um, some nuances that I may not be aware of that I think is completely okay, but to them it's completely not okay. Um, so going back always helps, especially when this story is going to be published officially somewhere. And you always kind of follow the the wish of your of your subject. You 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 don't overrule your subject's interest. Yeah, definitely. Because I think these people have given me my time, their time and their trust. So I don't think any photo, even if it's um award winning, I don't think any photo is worth um causing um you know someone to be aggrieved or causing un unpleasantness to my subject. I agree. But there, I mean, historically, there's a lot of examples where this balance has been kind of tipping over to the other side. And some of the most iconic pictures we know, they're actually, I think the people displayed in them do not necessarily uh, uh, agree with that. So it's a, it's a difficult uh, personal decision you have to take at that moment. Yeah, I think I have not been in such an extreme circumstance yet. I, I really don't think a picture is life or death. Um, of course, I use my own discretion a little bit. Um, for example, I, I, I did photograph a Muslim woman. Um, so in that photograph, she had her hair. So the hair was visible. Um, and then she goes through a transformation where she um, puts on her, her, her tudong, um, her hijab, so her headgear. And um, she knew this whole process was being photographed. But in the aftermath of looking at the pictures, um, she told me that she didn't want these earlier photographs to be published, um, you know, because of certain like sensitivities that her family may face. She didn't want her neighbors to see her in that way and all that. So I said, fine, because, you know, for me, it's a story but for her, she has to live with that. So it's okay for me to give it up. Yeah, I fully agree. I always tend to say that, I mean, I personally believe we shoot for the people and not against the people. But I mean, people is one aspect when you go into social documentary and more delicate subjects. The other one is, which I was wondering is, can be uh, governments as well. Uh, coming back to your, uh, I think it's called Hotton Project in China. I don't know how you exactly. Ah, the Hutong Project. Hutong, yeah. exactly. Sorry for yeah. that. Um, do you ever face 
consequences or, or have you been in situation where you could have faced consequences from government entities or people who disagree with your line of work? Probably. <laughs> I've never um, had any formal backlash. Um, so the Hutong project in Beijing was really just to, it was to document the life there. Um, of um, So Hutong sort of briefly translate into a, a style of architecture in China, whereby um, there's a lot of um, small houses. Um, it's kind of like a communal living within a space and some of the hutongs have courtyards like chinese courtyards and um it it's important because it, it's got a long long history um it's sort of dictated by the emperor like the position of the the hutong and where it should be is you know calculated um by one of the emperors few hundred years away so now it's being sort of torn down on a huge level. Um, thank goodness I don't live in China. So I sort of have the, I have this, um, I have the leeway um, to do such projects because technically I'm just a tourist. Um, in Singapore, I did another project. Um, it's called Silenced Minority. So this was documenting the general elections. Um, um, I don't know if you know, but um, you know, Singapore has been sort of like a one-party government. Although we are democratic, we've been a one-party government where one party keeps winning for as long as we can remember. So I, I actually published a book with some of my friends. So the book was about the opposition, the all the other opposition parties. Um, it was about the number of people who attended the opposition rallies um, versus the number of people who actually voted for the opposition. So in, in essence, very little people voted for the opposition, but a lot of people went for the opposition rallies. And um, a lot of people um, voted for the um, ruling party, but nobody went for their rallies. <laughs> so we published a book on that contrast um, and I actually got a friend to give it to one of the um, politicians in the ruling party. <laughs> so, <laughs> so actually a few members of the ruling party received this book. Yeah. So I, I think <laughs> there isn't anything wrong with it. It's just, it's an, it's an opinion. Um, so far I haven't done anything so extreme as to get me into trouble i think but is uh, do you feel an obligation to do so uh, because i do i mean that's why i'm also asking i'm fascinated by your work i think uh, this is where where photography can can shine and and really tell a lot, a lot of stories do you think you will go more into this direction in the future um i haven't i haven't really planned out I think my direction for in in the long term future, but um, there are several topics that always interest me. That's got to do with the people. Um, so whether or not the topic can become political, um, it's something I will always pursue. But I think I would bear in mind that 
I would be fairly neutral. So, you know, if you show one side of the story, it's always important to show the other side of the story. Um, I, I'm not a social activist. Um, I'm just someone who shows you what it is. Um, of course, it's impossible not to inject a viewpoint, right? But um, I think that by accompanying it with text and uh, context and interviews, um, the story could be better placed. I agree. And uh, uh, let me let me pull out another project of yours, because I feel like you're walking this line a lot. And that's something that fascinates me about your work. I was at the uh, Photokina this year, and you were presenting your project uh, Forbidden Tattoos. And it a bit goes in the same line of thinking. Um, maybe you can you can explain what this project is about before I'm, I'm continuing with the question. Yeah. So okay, Forbidden Tattoos. Um, it's a short video um, about about women who have decided to be tattoo artists or to be tattooed uh, in Japan and in Korea. So these these are the two countries or, or the only two countries in the world where if you are not a certified doctor, you cannot practice the art of tattooing. So essentially, um, all the tattooists in Japan and Korea, I would say 99% of them are illegal. So... When I approached this topic, um, I was sort of very careful um, when I when I to in in terms of informing the subject, um, and also I chose people who are already using social media to sort of promote their work, because it sort of sh it shows that these people are not afraid if they get if they get caught. So these people want to be out there. These people want to be seen. You know, and in a way, social media helps their business. Um, so, so it's two ways. So, in a way, they want me to to feature them. On the other hand, they're also facing potential consequences for actually you having featuring them, which is that line that I that I mean. It's it's they could actually face consequences, but in in this situation, you actually enable them to to communicate their issue to a larger audience. Yeah, so my strategy is not to show or not to give away any more information than they have already done on their social media. So, for example, um, they have shown their tattoos and their faces and their work in their social media. So, actually, in in the stuff that I've um, videoed, the, the film that I've done, I've cut out a lot of scenes, like scenes that sort of identify where their homes may be. So I've got scenes that actually um, you can see the the door, what is it, the door sign, the door numbers, the street names. So all of that, I've cut, it, cut them out. So they are still sort of ambiguous in, in that kind of way. I think that work is extremely strong and you can feel that you kind of made a deal with them to a degree in the pictures. All these pictures have an incredible strength and kind of an intimacy in them. I, I did speak to them um, exactly how they would be portrayed, um, as in exactly where the images are going to be shown and who was going to be seeing it, the type of audience that was going to be seeing it. So they are, they are, they are really aware Um um, I I did send them some questions that I may be asking, but uh, when I get on the ground, I think they they get the gist of you know what I'm trying to show, so I just let it flow. 
I just let them say whatever they feel comfortable saying. Now, this is one of your personal projects. So you also told a story during your presentation that you've like, you basically just decided to do this and then just went for it. You've been stood up, you had people who didn't show up. Uh, tell us a little bit about the process between you having the idea and then actually starting with the, with the work or finding somebody that wants to, to, to cooperate with you. I, <laughs> it, it really started out as a wild idea. Um, you know, I'm just on the internet, like reading stuff and I'm um, on Instagram following people. And um, I just, I, I think it's probably because um, I had a deadline. So I give myself a deadline. I don't have much time. I only have this month to do it. Um, so I thought, okay, let's give it a shot. So I started contacting people. Um, it was actually quite scary if you think about it, when I'm thinking about it now, I think maybe I was crazy or something. But I, I think I'm I'm the sort of person who works, um, when there's who works in short bursts. So I don't have a, a long stamina. <laughs> I don't have a. I I need like people to push me on. But if it's just a short period of time, um, where I could explore something, then I would go all out to be very persistent to do it and then i need a break afterwards i remember that story you you told when as you just started saying before is you you, you basically just looked up people and started contacting uh, a lot of them kind of you know fishing in the dark trying to find the right kind of uh, uh, um, subject so I'm I'm wondering is just to, to get a little bit of context is how many people did you contact and how, how does how, what happened between you kind of you know maybe writing on Instagram or writing an email and then actually being there and spending time with them how do you how do you get that to happen Yeah so initially I sent out I checked out their websites I went on forums I went on Instagram Facebook pages you know Google everything so Whenever I found an email address, I would just send an email, um, a personalized email. And then sometimes I find the numbers being listed. So I would sort of add them on like Kakao Talk, which is the, the um, program that the Koreans use. And then I would try to add them online, which is what the Japanese people use. So I would just send out multiple um, emails and messages. I think a few hundred, easily a few hundred. Um, especially messages or even when I get say the contact of um, a male tattoo artist I would text him and say do you know any female tattoo artists that you know would want to be interviewed so it's sort of you know because it was so far away and it it sort of involves me um, buying a ticket and going overseas and just spending an infinite indefinite amount of time so I wanted to make sure that I get all my chances right by the time I arrive there is the first person to get the first person to buy in is that the most difficult part because like after you can kind of like you know showcase what you've already done i think in in this case um there was no first person so i was sort of doing like multiple people um but maybe based on my website they they might have checked out my website and say okay this this person is real this person is decent and then sort of later on i started chatting with them and sending out more emails I, maybe it seemed that I had a concrete plan, um, but actually, when I re when I 
made an appointment with them. I, I yeah, like you said, I, I was stood up many times. So I knew this was going to happen, you know, that people may back out and stuff like that. So I actually, um, I booked myself a long stay, um, especially in Korea where I got most of my contacts. So I stayed there for about two weeks um, with just a lot of the days um, were just stalling. Like it just didn't happen. Like on the days when I'm supposed to meet people, people cancel on me like an hour before, you know, and stuff like that. So I arranged more interviews than I can actually handle. And then as people dropped out, it, it works out. It works out. <laughs> Do you get demotivated when people stand you up or does it even fuel like more your dedication to get what you're looking for? I think I get worried with logistics, you know, because being there, I booked myself like this hotel for two weeks and I have a flight to catch on this day. So it's more like I'm panicking that I wouldn't get anything done by the deadline of two weeks. So it's more like that. Um, because I, I think I, I like to be very organized. Um, so I, I always hope that things will go my way according to what I've organized. And if it doesn't, I, I try to make like a lot of backup plans, like contact more people, you know, even people who may not be very suitable or start asking them if they're friends and stuff like that. Let me ask you another question about kind of the situational thing, because another quality that you kind of need to have when you when you shoot these subjects is that you need to be able to interpret in the moment and see the best opportunity for a picture that you know maybe you have not known 30 minutes before tell us how you do that like you you walk into somebody's place how do you see potential for a good image um i think i'm sort of scanning all the time so I'm always scanning my environment, um, even when I'm not shooting, even in daily life. It's just become such a habit. Um, so I always go, you know, you know, I look at things like uh, this is a dirty carpet. Where where did it come from? Um, that's an IKEA lamp. Might that be still working? Is there a light bulb on the other side? So my mind is always like going in all kinds of different directions. And I'm just sort of observing the person, you know, very, very small details about the person, what he or she is doing. Um, you know, does he does he take off his shoes at home? Um, why is the floor warm? So I'm just sort of thinking about things simultaneously. So I think in um, Forbidden Tattoos, the first thing I noticed when I entered uh, Holy's apartment was that her floor was extremely warm. So, so which meant that... Um, I could get her to lie down on the floor because the, the rest of the, it was winter, right? It was minus, I don't know, 10 degrees or something. So it meant that, hey, if I'm going to do a shoot here, she could lie on the floor. So I'm just sort of planning and plotting, you know, my next move all the time. So it is, it's, it's a continuous process as you go along. How often does it happen to you that you change the narrative of a story while you actually shoot because other options kind of come up? Oh, all the time, <laughs> all the time, <laughs> because like sometimes you show up and, oh, your subject is still sleeping. Nobody's at the door or, you know, you want to take a certain scene and you can't because, I don't know, a lorry parked in front or someone started renovating or the weather sucks or, you know. So when I do have, um, when I do 
when I'm able to slot in an opportunity to take a certain shot, I always do it um, as soon as I can. You know, so I never wait for, say, oh, maybe this is better tomorrow. So I do it as soon as I'm able to do it so that I just sort of get that list out of my way. That makes sense. Let me ask you a completely different question, but I think it also matters because I've, I've been talking uh, last year to, to, to Bobby Lane, uh, which is... Uh, a very successful woman in photography and she started uh, in photography two decades ago or even longer ago how do you see today the photography world as a woman do you still deal with certain things uh, connected to to you to your gender or do you think we we are past that i deal with it every day <laughs> okay so we're not past that um every day every time i go out with a camera no matter where i go i have to I think I, I've stopped trying to prove myself. Um, so I think also because I look a lot younger than I, than I really am. Um, I also tend to dress young. I mean, I'm very casual. So people tend to think that I'm in my early 20s. They think that I have not graduated from university and stuff like that. I mean, I even have to deal with this like gender issues with um, very young men. So, yeah, I was telling a, another photographer um, when when we were in Dubai at the GPP at X Submit um, that um, I was sort of, I think, having to deal with looks like, oh, why are you carrying that camera? You know, how, how can you afford that camera? So I was holding a 50, 50R and uh, I, I, could, I just could feel people looking at me, like men looking at me. And then they would be pretty curious. And then they'll ask me, oh, what's your connection to Fujifilm? So I, I think I sort of so uh, nullified I'm so numb with this now that I don't really, I don't really bother anymore. It just, but I think it's it's just a way of dealing with it. So I just laugh and and get on with my day. Yeah, I get men who who tell me that I shouldn't be shooting a certain way or or that they should check my images to see if the images are good enough and stuff like that. Um, all the time. Yeah. So you really kind of started ignoring this, but in, in general, do you feel this is getting better or are we stagnant in, in development? Oh, stagnant. Maybe it got worse. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't... Um, so, you know, because there's a lot of people who, who still aren't on the mirrorless system. Mm -hmm. So some people will ask me like, what are you using? What brand are you using? What camera is that? So then they'll have a lot of doubts. Um, because they're pretty used to like people using like Nikon and Canons. So, um, yeah, things haven't improved one bit, unfortunately. That's a pity to hear. Tell us what we can do to improve it. Us men that we actually, because the reason I'm asking is because I don't, I, I can observe that. I don't feel it. So I like to ask you, cause you know, from firsthand experience, what would you, is there anything you, you would want us, uh, me speaking for the male part of the population to do different in that, in that regard? I think it's, it's a collective effort. Um, and it has to start top down from the industry. Like for example, I mean, 
hiring more female photographers um, in published media, um, more female newspaper photographers, more female fashion photographers. So it has to start top down from these industries that are pushing out images every day on a large scale. I think especially in fashion. Um, so when we start doing that, then we can achieve um, sort of a more equal numbers in terms of the people who are making the images and the, the people who are actually the ambassadors, you know, speaking about images or for the camera. And then it will slowly start getting better. But I think this will take years. It will take decades for this situation to improve. Or maybe even generations. For my personal perceptions, I, I, my favorite photographers are at least 50% women and they've uh, sometimes photographed uh, more than 50 or 60 years ago. So I, I, I was wishing that it wouldn't be like that, but uh, we just learned that uh, apparently not much has changed and uh, yeah, maybe we should think about that and change our approach a little bit. I think it's also the women themselves. Um, as a woman, we have to be how to say, um, we have to be gutsy enough to say, you know, just uh, just do what you, you need to do. Just get the job done. Don't, don't you know, be sidelined because of some comments or something small that, that's got in the way of your day. Um, you just need to be, you just need to stand up quicker and stronger. Yeah, and, and kind of take the high ground and not get into, into uh, destructive discussions probably. Yeah, I think um, it's important to be calm and not fight back because there's no winning and um, there's just a lot of energy, I think. There's a lot of spirit wasted trying to fight the small things. So my method is I just walk away. <laughs> um, but you have to be able to walk away in a way, in the sense that, in a way that it does not affect you, you know, that it doesn't get yourself down. So you need to be strong inside to be able to do that. It's training. It's practice. <laughs> I, I'm not worried about you being strong, but probably there's a few other women out there that are happy to to hear this and to get the support from somebody who's lifted and, and, and will go on living this. So I hope this will change. Actually, you know, I think two years ago, I gave a talk in Japan at, uh, at Fujikina. Um um, it was just a generous talk, just um, presenting old work. Uh, most of the audience were men, I think maybe 80%, maybe even 90%. And at the end of the talk, um, one woman, a Japanese, a young lady, she came up to me and she told me she was trying to get her foot into photography. Um, but she told me that it was really difficult, um, I think because of certain stigmas, um, that and that didn't allow her to be employed in a certain way or that she would lose the job to a male photographer. So after that conversation, she hugged me. She gave me a big hug. I was actually, I was shocked. And uh, she cried. She had a good cry. <laughs> so I think the, you know, certain things are, are very real Um you could, you know, a woman could go out and do all the personal work you want. But when it comes to um, fighting for certain commercial jobs, especially, um, that's when you need somebody to give you a chance. 
together. Let's let's talk a little bit about gear as we go towards the end. And this is the Fuji Love podcast, and you are a global Fuji film ambassador. You often shoot video and and still images together. How do you do that? How do you balance that? And what kind of tools do you use? First, I want to say it's really thanks to Fujifilm that I started doing both. So prior to this, I've not actually tried, uh, not tried video. Um, but, you know, because we always have to produce like this uh, short segments um, for Fujifilm Global YouTube. So I thought, you know, instead of getting, instead of hiring a videog videographer to uh, film me, I thought that I want to be the creative in this video and I, I would want to take the chance to do something close to my heart or at least, you know, something that could be a personal project as well. So, for example, the, the case of Forbidden Tattoos, um, I think it's not been done before that, you know, a photographer takes a, a sort of reportage approach to making the video. So I actually asked... I emailed Fujifilm and said, you know, do you mind if I touch on this topic? And do you mind if I do it this other way instead? And that I'm not really promoting your camera. And they said, they said okay, do it. <laughs> so that's, that's sort of how um, I slowly sort of, I think, developed my um, skills for it. Um, it's quite difficult because when you start doing it, uh, I tend to see photographs first, then I see videos so i would be on video mode and then sort of panicking you know to switch to photo mode then when i'm when i'm on photo i'm like hey i've got enough of this shot and i think i should go back to video you know but then another photo happens another still happens so it takes a bit of getting used to there's a lot of juggling around i fumble a lot i'm not perfect i i um yeah i fumble a lot and i'm sort of just learning how to deal with sound. Um, so I'm just talking to people in the industry and asking them, how do you do this? So it's more the technicalities that right now, uh, I think I have to learn. I have to pick up more skills. But um, at least with the approach or the storytelling, um, I'm sort of, how would I say, sharpening, sharpening myself creatively. Uh, when it comes to storytelling, because I think video is the next level and it's, it's, it's really challenging. I'm really enjoying the process. It's a good point. Let me, let me put two questions out of that. So you basically, you're using one camera, which Fujifilm is great in, because you can basically just switch with the flip of one button between a preset video setup and a preset uh, photo setup. The other point I want to ask you is, do you think in the future, that uh, social documentary, documentary or photojournalists um, are actually required to bring along still images, video and maybe even text? I think more and more, um, you know, with the sort of videos we're putting out, it's a lot of um, short clips. I mean, the sort of work that are being given these days have a lot to do with social media, right? Um, and it's something that more and more you cannot avoid. I've been off. I've been on a few um, commercial shoots, professional uh, like shoots that are like big production, um, TV commercials, where you you have the whole um, video production team, um, say like twenty, more than 10, 10, 20 people doing video, right? And then I'm there as the sales photographer, 
But the type of stale that I have to do is actually a stale of the scene. So it's not a behind the scenes. So I have to do a, a stale that looks like it could be part of a campaign poster. So in that, in that sense, even that production, they needed photo and video at the same time. You know, so, so for them, for the client, it would be cost savings because you only need to set it up one time and you do it within the same day and they get two types of people to do it. But if you're talking about on a smaller scale, if the client doesn't have that sort of budget, then the photographer or rather the videographer will have to do both. Until the day comes where um, video would be so good that you can take a print screen, you can take a still shot of the video. Until that day comes, the photographer increasingly would have to learn to do both. Unfortunately, I mean, especially when we're talking about, you know, like social stories. So you're bringing basically home a whole a whole media package these days. I, maybe because um, it's the way they choose to put their content out. Um, video is always a little bit more engaging. Um, they also need someone who can interview, someone who can interact with the subjects when, when it's documentary and stuff. Um, they do look for a lean team. Um, firstly, of course, there's a budget constraint, production constraint. And secondly, um, they don't want to bring in, say, like a 10-man crew and scare off whoever, you know, they, they intend to be interviewing. Yeah. I mean, it's even to your advantage. The more intimate you, you want to kind of uh, be with your subject or the closer you want to get, I think the better it is if you're actually by yourself. Yes and no, right? So if you're by yourself, you have to manage a lot of things. You've got to... I mean, you've got to manage logistics. Um, Sometimes lighting may be a problem and sound. Let me let me pick up the light point. I see in all your pictures, you are only working with available light, right? So you're, in, you're, you're just uh, arriving in a place and see what the light gives and then work with what is given. Have you ever used flash or LEDs or anything else? For uh, formal events, when I do shoot them, like when I shoot weddings and stuff, I use flashes all the time. Um, just so that it's easier when it comes to pre-production. Um, for documentary, it depends. Like, um, so going back to your previous question, so I'm I'm mainly shooting right now on the XT3 and uh, also on the XH1. So I mean, the way we can push ISO levels, it's pretty good, right? Like at twelve thousand eight, I think um, it it still works. So I've depended a lot on, of, on ambient light. Um, sometimes, I mean, if there, there is really no light, I'll probably like use the street lamp or something like that. Um, I've brought small lights in, like, you know, small LED lights. But I feel that for documentary, I feel that it betrays the atmosphere. So I'm... I haven't really sort of tuned in to that sort of way of lighting, but I would find a light in that environment if it was possible. And I'll ask the subject, is it okay I turn on this light instead of the other light or something like that? 
as you mentioned, I mean, I, I shoot the XT3 personally and been shooting the XT series since the XT1. I think that the ISO, ISO capabilities uh, absolutely are an essential thing. Without them, uh, I couldn't work the way I do it. So 12,800 ISO just looks good. There's no concern. Yeah, yeah. So um, the way I work, I shoot uh, only on manual. Uh, so, for example, if it's at 12,008, I mean, sometimes, you know, you get really orangey light or absolutely like darkness. So I tend to shoot on a certain Kelvin um, so that later on in my post-production, I could e more easily sort of push back uh, the tones, the color temperature. Um, and also, I think, you know, if I have to be on, say, 1 over 30, uh, of course, the XH1 works really well, right, with the EBs, the stabi stabilization. But if you have to have a blurred image, like 1 over 15 and there's partial blur, I think that for my style of photography, it just suits. I mean, it goes with the, the ambient of the, of, the, of the film. So it doesn't have to be technically... Um, correct but it has to feel uh, how you felt at that time very very true i i'm a, I'm a big uh, uh, defender of the approach that the content and the emotion of the image is way more important than the technical execution you are aware that i think this is a more female style of working right <laughs> Oh, I, I don't know. I, I think if I if I look back into the photographers I admire, and I go through, I have a huge collection of photo books. Um, if I go through them, some of the most um, best images, most emotional images, are technically uh, flawed. So no matter if male or female, I just figured that a good image is is totally independent from from its technical execution. It's always the emotion and a lot of other things that that trump technical execution. I tend to say nobody can remember the sharpest image of the last century, but everybody has a favorite uh, emotional image of the last century. I think it's I for me like photography it's how it's how it makes you feel or it's how it makes you think. So photography is how it makes the viewer think. Um, that's one, one of its purposes. And how it changes the photographer. That's the second purpose, at least for me. I fully agree with that. I think either you tell a strong, powerful story on many levels and uh, triggering an emotion, no matter what emotion, on the viewer side is actually your first um, entry into a nonverbal conversation. Now, if that image is sharp, but it doesn't transmit any emotion, there is no conversation. So for me, then you failed as a photographer. I think that's also the reason why, um, as a photographer, we tend to favor a set of gear um, that we can use seamlessly. So you don't want to have to worry about the technicalities. Fully agree. That's why I'm actually surprised that you're, you're shooting on fully manual, but I'm assuming that over the years this just became a second nature and you don't have to think about it. I think, um, so earlier on I told you that I always like scan my um, environment. So I, I sort of look at the world in terms of like f-stops and aperture set. I mean, <laughs> so I would say go to a room and I'll, I mean, it's just sort of like instantaneous in my mind. Like, okay, I would shoot this like 
1 over 30 at 4,000 ISO. So everywhere I go, um, I just see it like it should be, it could be like this. That's amazing. I wouldn't be able to do that, but actually a lot of people I know that a lot of people that I know that have been into photography for longer or have been into photography before the completely digital age have that ability. I don't have it. And a lot of people I know who started with digital cameras don't have it anymore because you've never been kind of forced to learn that in detail. I mean, you know it, you use it sometimes, but you're not walking into a room and kind of, you know, getting the settings in your head. So all of this, I think, comes with practice. You know, if you're shooting so much, um, it just sort of, and if you are constantly shooting on manual and you're shooting so much, after a while, you just sort of get it. It it's just it just clicks. Try it. I might will. I have a good friend in New York who who stopped shooting digital completely two years ago, went into film, and uh, he built that skill within two years. And I'm highly impressed by by what he does. Also, that he was able, he was willing to let go of something that works and just try something new and expose himself to failure. I think that's also a good way to go regularly. I think also, um, I mean, with with you know better sensors these days, right? Like. When I shoot with the GFX, I mean the sensor is much lar is larger, so the way it, it lets in light is different. So you have to tweak your sort of understanding of settings according to your camera. So it helps that you are very familiar with one camera, one type of camera, or and the lenses that come with it, and then you would know um, how much light that sensor needs in what in what situation. Although a lot of uh, uh, amazing cameras come out regularly, I believe the longer you shoot with one setup, the better you become. I, for example, love to shoot prime lenses because I exactly know where I have to go to get a certain frame or a certain kind of image. And it's something you train over the years. I want to ask you, which are your favorite lenses? Are you shooting zoom, uh, prime lenses? How do you how do you do that? Uh, I'm shooting only prime lenses. So... I think my favorite would be the 23 1.4 and the 56 1.2. So these are my most uh, used lenses. I am starting to realize that with video, um, I can't use sort of the same approach. I mean, I reckon that a 1855 uh, would be better on uh, when I'm doing like video shoots than say a still shoot. But um, I'm just so used to that that focal length. So 23 um, on APS-C would be 35, right? Mm -hmm. And 56 would be 85. Exactly. Yeah, so um, uh, I occasionally, um, I just bought the 816 uh, mm and um, I think it's quite equivalent to the 1424. <coughs> Excuse me. So it's quite equivalent to the 1424 um, that I used to have uh, when I'm shooting with my Nikons. So I do have a, a, a range of lenses, um, but my go-to preferred uh, would be a, a several primes. Um, but precisely because um, I, knew, I know how it's going to look uh, even before I raise the camera. So, and I know at what distance I should be standing. So what I do is I would say gauge the subject gauge, um, and the environment, the way I want to compose. I would go to the point where I think looks best on the camera. So I would physically maneuver myself to that point 
and then I would raise my camera. Which is the way to go. Let's, uh, towards the end, uh, let me drop you some bit shorter questions before we have to end because we're going a little bit over time, but I think it's absolutely worth it. Um, I saw in your in on your homepage, you sometimes mix black and white and color. How do you decide on that? Do you pre-plan or you decide after the fact? Oh, it's completely random. <laughs> okay. uh, actually, I... I... To be honest, I don't know if it works. So I shoot um, in color 100% of the time. I've tried shooting in black and white, but I think I'm not a black and white um, person. Um, so I actually um, do that in post-production. Uh, although I know that this is the wrong way to do it because, you know, the way you would compose a black and white photo, it's... it's um, completely different when you are actually shooting shooting it so i just sort of go by my feeling later on when i'm editing the project there's no i don't think there's a formula to it and um to be honest i don't know if it works <laughs> i don't i don't i mean i i share your approach i believe there's no reason not to collect as much data as you can i don't know if it's wrong but i do the same thing i shoot everything in color and then put it in black and white after so i think that's efficient to do so yeah i have this sort of um um thought process right that because i'm more of a, a person who records so um, I sometimes feel guilty putting out the image in black and white because I feel like you're depriving the viewer of certain information. Um, you know, it, for me, it's not just that photography should look beautiful, but I think it should deliver information. So the aesthetics is, is lower on my list of considerations. So sometimes when I do put out stuff in black and white, I just feel that, you know, the viewer deserves more information in a certain way. Although a black and white shot could draw him into the story, but at the same time, he's missing out on a certain truth. Yeah, I think I think it depends on, on, on the genre you're shooting in. And then as you just quickly touched, I think sometimes black and white also... El eliminates distraction and can concentrate you on a certain key aspect of the image it's a bit 50 50 do you think it depends on what what you were trying to achieve and and kind of what your mission is as well yeah i think so and and sometimes when you go home that mission actually changes or, or sometimes when you develop a story further and deeper uh you know the story changes and what you want changes as well your purpose changes that's true that closes a bit the circle to what we talked about before that uh, sometimes things change in the middle of doing them let me um ask you if you had a wish that you could address to fujifilm for something for a future product or a change or something that you're currently missing in the fujifilm lineup what would it be oh i'm quite embarrassed to say this because it's actually a very simple thing <laughs> so it's the it's the dial control um on your left hand dial on the left side of the camera so i would like the single shot still image um dial dial what is it the switch to be right beside the video switch 
Because right now, you have the video stuff, right? And then you have to go through the um, CH, CL, CM, and then you get a single shot, right? So I would like the video to be just beside the stale. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I've actually um, sent this feedback over. I mean, I've, I've, I've told them. So I hope to see it soon. So they've actually been very good in sort of implementing, I mean, photographers' wishes. Um, before that, I think it was at the 2016 Photokina, um, I told them I requested um, to have the voice recording function because I wanted to have the option where if you took a certain photo, uh, you could press a button and sort of record the details of that photo on the spot. You know, so you could sort of shoot and run without bringing out the notepad. So they've actually um, included that voice recording function uh, into the camera. What a great option. Does that already exist? Because I've, I've never been aware of that. Yeah, it exists. Uh, it's a little bit deeper into the menu, but you'll find it. So you could take a photo and then you press um, to record your voice. And then you could say like, oh, um, Mr. Lee, 56 years old, and so on and so forth. You know, certain information about your, your subject. And where do I find that audio file when I, when I, picture, when I bring my pictures to my, to my computer? Um, it, you, could, you can download it. So it's recorded into your SD card. And then you would, you would see it when you download it. Oh, cool. Never, never, ever heard of that feature. But I have to check that out right after we stop talking because that's great. Yeah, so actually they were really cool. So I was talking to uh, Mr. Uh, Jun Watanabe. So he, after that, when it was implemented, when the voice recording function was implemented, he sent me an email um, to tell me that it's now available. And he sent me a list of instructions how to do it. How cool is that? <laughs> That's amazing. I'm sure a lot of listeners probably never heard of that. I, I never met anybody who mentioned that function to me. So that might be raising the popularity of that function within, within that podcast. I, I'm quite sure it's not a very um, popular want or wish, but it's something that's good to have. Absolutely. So we have to end at this point because um, we're slightly running out of time in the meantime. But I would like to ask you, uh, as the last question, is there anything you want to say to the Fujilove community before we part ways for this time? Oh, my God. Jens, why do you give me such a difficult question? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think that a lot of photographers have inhibitions in their head. So they would think about certain things. or And then the more you think about it, um, the fear sets in. So it's better to, to do and not think. Um, even if you don't really know what you're thinking, or even if the idea is not yet well constructed in your head, um, it's sometimes better to just go on the ground and um, photograph something or just to take a walk um, and then you know see for yourself what's, what's really happening. Um, don't just sit on your desk and imagine what could happen because the more you get out there, um, the more you, you will learn, the more you will enjoy um, photography. So do more, think less and, and, and enjoy your photography and follow the subjects that, that, that move you. Yeah, and, and I think, of course, think, think on the spot. 
think on the spot um, so that you can be accurate with your judgment. I like to quote just I like to quote uh, Joel Meyerowitz, who says that uh, um, a photographer is much like a jazz musician. Like sometimes you just interpret without thinking and you only understand afterwards actually why you did it. And the more you practiced it, the better it works. I think that's true um, to say that about life as well. That's right. We cannot dive into that now because that's going to take us another hour. So I'll just thank you, Mindy, so much for being so generous on this interview and for joining us for the Fuji Love podcast. Thank you, Jens. It was absolute pleasure. Thank you, Mindy. Bye. Thank you for checking in and listening to the Fujilove.com podcast. Check out Fujilove.com where we live and breathe all things Fujifilm and photography with Fujifilm cameras. 